0: All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that our journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson. My good friend Greg Fahnd and I are also on this journey of becoming. We are both dedicated to inviting you into our journeys and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey that we all find ourselves on. We want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe and in our pluralistic society. We have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of our biggest allies. We have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And we believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith, in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right, welcome back, or welcome for the first time, perhaps, to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. I am one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and hanging out with me today is my good buddy, Greg Farrant. Greg uh, I was gonna say what's up, man, but I always say that. I need a new line.
1: Yeah. Well. How, yeah, some, yeah. I got. Sometimes nothing. you ask about hockey. Yeah. Get, 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 what's your What's your got new? Got nothing. Dude, I need you to come up with like a new clever catchphrase. Uh,
0: yeah, I don't. I I'm not very clever, so it's awesome. not gonna work. Awesome. <laughs> 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 I'm trying to think, but like everything just has like either you a beer haze a beer or... too much beer
1: haze in between rational eh. thought and creative thought or
0: yeah there's that um although i didn't i have not consumed much alcohol today although i did pour myself a process <laughs> for, um, yeah, there is a point here. of
1: relativity of much
0: that's true um yeah. but i'll have you know i weigh 130 pounds and so like uh clearly one, one
1: beer yeah,
0: we'll just wreck me. So, <laughs> are you 130? Like 130, 135. Yeah, around there.
1: Proud of you, man. I don't wait Good for you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, that that's how about that? That's the question we ask people now like, hey, welcome to the podcast. How much <laughs> does like? Josh Patterson weigh? <laughs> and if you get it right, then you've listened to the podcast before and you're allowed to hang out.
1: We'll get you a free Patreon membership if you can yeah. <laughs> guess Josh's weight.
0: That way you can see the video of yourself that you already saw in real in real time. That's brilliant. Right on. Sweet. Well, uh, Greg, today we will be actually talking to a person I'm super excited to talk to. They've been very patient with us. Um, I think I first started communications uh with Jonathan. So we uh Jonathan Foster is here with us. Um and uh, I will welcome you in two seconds, Jonathan, but I'm gonna kiss your ass before I say welcome. But Jonathan has been very patient. Uh, Jonathan reached out um, a hot second ago. And um, yeah, like now he's here. (laughs) I'm very excited. Uh, He wrote a fantastic book that I really enjoyed. Um, I was posting quotes of it uh, on Facebook and such when I was reading, which is how you know I liked it. Um, And so, yeah, Jonathan, welcome.
2: How's it going? It's going good, man. Thanks for having me on the show. And yeah, we've been interacting for a while, but. You know, you kept returning the phone call, so I just keep the conversation. (laughs) A lot, a lot of people don't do that, so I'm always honored to actually have the response. And in case you're wondering, I'm 212. There we go, 212. (laughs) All right.
1: (laughs) I'm I'm about I'm about 165, so we run Um, the spectrum right here. I'm way over you
2: guys, so (laughs) that I don't know if that's good or bad, but that's where Uh, we're at.
0: Well, uh, Jonathan, just for clarity's sake contact any previous guest on this podcast and they'll have a similar experience. And that's what happens when somebody with ADHD uh, is in charge of scheduling. That's what, that's one of my downfalls. <laughs> I
1: appreciate
2: your uh, patience. <laughs> all good, man.
1: Yeah. Well, Jonathan, i tell you what you're uh, well, and, and now you're with two hosts with uh, ADHD, um, which always leads to uh, and as, Bazinga. It's a lot of energy and who knows where we'll go. Uh, but but so, Jonathan, you wrote a book, the theology of consent, mimetic theology, uh, in an open relational universe. And uh, one thing that you know, again, if you just hear that, if you hear that title, you might be tempted to think that this is principally an academic, uh, kind of ivory tower uh, theological book, and it is full of rich, brilliant theology. Uh, but any any good theology, any you know, t- t- the point. Of good theology or philosophy is to engage us in the rawest places in real life in the gritty day-to-day um and that's what this book does and jonathan and uh, josh and i were talking about it before him there's so much humor uh josh was saying that he was reading this and like literally laughing out loud at points like you engage it with humor uh, and also rawness and realness um i'm not sure that there's more of as a recovering evangelical in some senses who is uh really moving away from such uh, fear-based theologies that create a system where uh, God is, you know, hugging you with one arm and holding a dagger at your necks with the other, uh, or some uh, kind of Santa Claus God who is either going to give or withhold gifts based on your naughtiness or your uh, capacity to ask for things. And what you engage with, uh, what you approach and articulate is something so Refreshing, and I and I believe that our, uh, and I know Josh and I talk about this, that your view on God really kind of in many ways defines your view on life. It's it's not just some uh, abstract theological perspective of the, uh, the 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 big deity in the sky, but that your your perspective on the divine radically impacts every uh, second of your life, consciously or unconsciously. And so, I think it's very helpful to begin to dig in and unpack. Uh, our, our perspectives. Um, and of course, as you know, uh, we talked about this, Jonathan, just before the podcast at, at Rethinking Faith, we love to connect theology with stories. So we definitely are going to dig deep into your the- theology and perspective into Rene Girard, uh, uh mimetic theology. We're going to dig into uh, process theology and we're going to splash around in that like kids in a kiddie pool. Uh, but before we do, uh, we know that, uh, no one is drawn to this work uh, out of the blue, right? That we're we're drawn to theology, uh, we're drawn to explore the nature of reality, uh, our philosophy and perspective on hope, on suffering, on life, on meaning, because we're wrestling, man. We're wrestling in our guts, uh, and some people have the capacity to just roll on uh, and just. I, I've got I've got dear friends who just have the capacity to kind of live life and they're happy. I'm not one of them. Uh, I, I sometimes am jealous of them, um, but I'm I'm an overthinker. My head is full of thinking thoughts uh, nonstop uh, all the time, for better for worse. And I know that you are too. <laughs> you don't have the capacity to just float. So maybe before we dig into your book and your perspective, if you could say what in your journey, kind of maybe nutshell. That's Josh gives me shit for that saying that all the time. If you could nutshell your kind of uh, journey that led you to actually want to write this book? What what in your guts, what happened in your story? What kind of, what, what fucked you up to, or, you know, in your journey to actually make you want to write this book for the world?
2: Yeah, well, that's a lot of stuff. Really glad to be with you guys. And yeah, I'm happy to dive into all of this. It's uh, been super meaningful the last three years. Writing about it, I say three years, um, really the journey goes back probably at least seven, eight years, almost eight years now. And then in some ways over 50 years, cause that's, it takes a lifetime to kind of get to some of this stuff. Um, but what I started to say was it's been really meaningful studying and writing the last three years and hanging out with Tom Ward and doing this. Um, so it's always an honor to be able to, to also talk about it. So thanks for having me on. Um, the story, probably the, the the major demarcation, really watershed moment of my life, and my wife and I's life, my family's life was New Year's Day, uh, 2015, our oldest daughter was killed in a car wreck. And previous to that, I'd been a, a um, church planting pastor, and I was in the middle of a, of a brand new church plant, actually, in 2015. We had started it at the end of 2013. So... That happened on New Year's Day. I, I was already processing some things a little bit uh, differently than I had when I was younger. I was already kind of a, a bit more progressive than my my denominational kind of affiliation, which used to be with the Church of the Nazarene. Um, but then when that happened, you know, everything just kind of changed. Um, I didn't set out for it to change. I, I wasn't I wasn't particularly mad at God or the church. Um, there has been a lot of anger, but it wasn't that as much. It wasn't like I wanted to just blow everything up, and and it's just I started pulling at a thread. I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, George McDonald, but he's the kind of the you know the fictional writer that inspired Tolkien and and C.S. Lewis and others. But he has this princess and goblin story about the princess. I'll, it's just I won't get into it in detail, but basically she's instructed when she's when she's uh, afraid to pull on this invisible thread and then it will lead her. So she does one night and it leads her through the back of the castle and through hidden passageways that she didn't know about and out through a garden and out into the dark and across the field and to the base of a mountain where she becomes afraid because the the thread goes inside the mountain. She doesn't want to go in there. And um, so she turns around to go back only to realize that the thread, the invisible thread doesn't go backwards it only goes forward. And so I I think about that all the time. I think about, I just started pulling at this thread or it started pulling at me. Honestly, I'm not sure which, maybe a little of both. There was no going back. Once you see some stuff, you can't unsee it. Once you hear some things, you can't unhear it. And frankly, you don't, well, I kind of some days probably we were talking about that earlier. There's some days I wouldn't mind retreating back into naivete, but most most of the time, no, it's good. It's good to move forward. And so that's what I started doing. Um, and yes, it was, I'm, I was started trying to answer these questions. Like, what does this mean? And I know I'm not the first one to have ever gone through anything difficult like this. Um, but I took it really seriously. And I was pastoring. So I was kind of like in real time trying to be the meaning maker, which is what pastors do. For everyone, it was a small church plant. I had two boys in high school and junior high at the time. You know, my daughter's friends from college all came to the church, and I had nieces and nephews, and so I really wanted to approach the thing with intellectual integrity and honesty, and there's tons of stuff to talk about all that, but that's how it led. That's how I got introduced somewhere right at the very beginning. I I got introduced to Brene Girard. I can't remember. It might have been. Peter Rollins might have been a Brian Zahn thing. I don't remember. Um, and then that really helped me as I worked through some of that. And then Tom Ord, who's the open and relational guy, he comes from the Church of the Nazarene. He's still a Nazarene. None of us can figure out how that's possible, and including him, I don't, we don't we don't get it. Um, but we have a similar background, and and I was kind of aware of some of this stuff, anyhow. But then I really got into it. And so I'm probably rambling, but to wrap this little piece up, what happened for me was Rene Girard's mimetic theory was so super helpful, and open and relational theology was so super helpful that essentially I was like, I wonder what would happen if we put these two together. And so the book is outlining, you know, it's lining out mimesis, and then it's lining out ORT, and then it's crossing the lines, it's crossing the wires, and watching the smoke fly and it was really really hard at times because they're uh they're very different things um but then at other times it was it was really really beautiful so um so yeah i don't know does that answer the question that starts to answer some of the question right
0: yeah no most it most definitely does it's it's so um interesting feels like a trite word. So I, I don't mean it that way, but it's so interesting to me how many people, uh, come to open and relational theology out of some form of suffering or trauma that they experience. Um, it's similar. Cause like, I don't know if, you know, I really like like Christian mysticism. And so like a lot of the mystics are introduced that way as well. Um, I kind of came to open and relational theology and the Mystics together and then found like oh these things play nicely um but no all, all that to say like yeah that very much answered the question and uh thanks for sharing um, absolutely uh and it was fun I remember <laughs> when you had first reached out and um that I started you know looking at your work and all. I was like wow these are two like you know that these are a few of my favorite things song or whatever. I was like <laughs> "Open relational theology and mimetic theory. What? So I was, I was super excited. I, you know, I had kind of like a nerd moment. Um, and I, I want to jump. I want to, you know, talk about both of those things, but first I want to ask you, um, what drew you to the word consent in, in, uh, when you wrote the book theology of consent, um,
2: yeah, how did, how did um, you come
0: about that title?
2: A couple of different. There's probably a couple of different ways to answer that. Um, kind of the more um, dramatic way to answer it was, I was considering uh, Mary and the interaction between God and Mary, and that really, really important phrase that, as a as a Protestant, I never really considered that much growing up, but over the last several years, it's become really important to me. But the phrase, of course, is let it be. And so all the things that God, you know, that's happening there in the the nativity story, it seems to me only happened because Mary, Mary says, let it be. And how terrible the story would have been if that little line had been omitted and God just, you know, does whatever God wants. And in this case, I don't even know what, yeah, rapes her or impregnates her and some, you know, without her consent. And um, so I was just wrestling with the idea of consent. And then I thought maybe the, maybe the whole, how much, like how many incredibly huge, important things happened because this one small little girl, I assume she was a little, I don't know, maybe she was large, but this one small little, you know, out of the way Hebrew girl gives her consent. And then I thought maybe the whole cosmos revolves around such consent, and I was so arrested by that thought, like it it just it messed me up for a couple of days, and, and in fact probably a couple of years. And so I kept coming back to that, so, you know, and trying to figure out if if I believed that, if I believed that it was possible, or if it might have been possible to believe that the, the whole cosmos revolves around consent, and I The more I played with it, I thought it was true. Um, I think the best thing we can say of God is that God is love. It's possible there are some other things that he or she is, but I think it's the best thing. I think it might be the truest thing. And if God is love, I think the fundamental characteristic of love is consent. This beautiful, incredibly powerful, but also humble agency, this thing, it's like the fulcrum Um, it could be so small, but it can move so much. And so I just kept returning to it again and again. I also had a friend, my friend Lativa Fraser, who helped me a few years ago, work through LGBTQ stuff. And, um, I was trying to come up with boundary markers one day with her. And she basically said, well, it's, it's really, you know, just about consent. And I was like, oh yeah. So that was in my mind. And then of course, Tom Ord's work with love. It just, it just kept coming up again and again. Um. And I think it really dovetails nicely with Girardian views. Girard is not interested in uh, redemptive sacrifice, you know, enforcing it on people. Open and relational theology and process theology is definitely not interested in that either. It winds up all being about consent. So I think this little word consent holds a lot of power and is very applicable to a lot of things that are going on in our world today
1: okay there, there's so much beauty there and and let me just make a quick uh side note if you hear any noise in the background i've got a 14 week old puppy who is not happy that i'm on a podcast uh in the other room so if you hear some whining okay. there's nothing terrible going on in the background okay. that is my 14 year old puppy uh maggie but anyway uh so, so jonathan what you just described oh my god so even as you're talking it, it, it's like balm again just with with our kind of classic western uh perspective of omnipotence and uh with an idea and and many many years ago i was a five-point calvinist so like doubling down on omnipotence i'm (laughs) i'm in a different universe now but that that whole concept that i for, for that season of my life i feel like my life was so chaotic And I needed some grounding clarity and the idea of an all powerful deity at that kind of lily pad of my spiritual journey was comforting uh, for that season. But as I began to live into life and experience hardship, experience suffering, uh, what what can initially gave me hope started creating a profound discomfort uh, and uh, dissonance. Um, and so so in this exploration, in my own journey, you know, shifting from an omnipotent God uh, to something very different that, again, re- resonates with uh, process theology. And one of the things we love to do is, you know, I know we have people that are theology nerds that listen to us all the time, and they already know about Rene Girard and mimetic theology and process theology. But if you would, and again, uh, you know, Josh and I were talking about this earlier, we were laughing about it. We've had Tom... On Tom Ord on this show a bunch of times. Of course, you know he is a rock star in the process uh, theology world. um And uh, now we have the opportunity, and this is this is Josh's comment to have someone besides Tom break down what process theology is uh, yeah, for Tom, our listeners. Tom
0: can't have all the fun.
1: Yeah, he can't have right? all the fun. He can't Sorry, have all the Tom. fun. And, and it's a big world, plan. Tom. It's a That's big right. world, Tom. <laughs> That's right. And he's a, he's an avid listener to our podcast. So we celebrate that. So he's hearing us as we speak this. That's but right. so if you could, if you could kind of, uh, for our newer listeners, uh, can articulate how you would define process theology. And then we'll get get, get into mimetic theology and, and Renee Gerard. But kind of define process theology for us.
2: Yeah. Well, how about we stick with uh, I'm more comfortable unpacking open and relational theology yeah. versus process, which um, they're really, they're very uh, similar to talk about one is to talk about the other process is a little bit more complex and ambiguous at times for me. Um, so open a relational. Yeah. Well, first of all, Tom is an amazing person and he's the one who coined the phrase. And, um, you know, a lot of us owe a lot to the work that he's done. And one of the greatest things about Tom is the is the fact that his personality and his spirit um, match are congruent with his theology, which is always yes, nice. Very much so. All of us have always, met.
1: always nice, yeah. always nice. Yeah. Not always true with my seminary professors, but always no, nice when you no. find it, yeah. right?
2: Or your pastor, or to be frank, not always true with me either. But um, but I've been in Tom. I've been with Tom in a, in a lot of settings, and and uh, he's a he's a good guy. I owe a lot to our non-rivalrous friendship. So with open and relational, yeah, I usually start with the relational piece and and talk a bit about how the entire world is interconnected. We The reality seems to be suggesting to us that, um, that the nature of reality is relational, that everything is connected from the micro to the macro. It's a deeply entangled world. It's so entangled. You know, our smartest people are still trying to figure it out. You know, it's so entangled that that we mess up things literally just by looking at them at the quantum level, at least. And um, we 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 cannot explicate all the stuff that's going on there. So, you know, it's true biologically. It's true uh, ecologically. You know, the trees outside right now are giving off oxygen and I'm breathing it and I'm giving them carbon dioxide back. I mean, like in a real sense, my lungs. And it's funny, even just picturing the dendrite, the images of my lung, it's like the image of that tree. It's it's the it's so symbiotic, it's ridiculous. Everything is interconnected. Um, and so a lot of people understand that. I mean, we haven't always understood that scientifically, you know, for a long time, age of enlightenment, age of reasoning, all that was all about substance-based things. It was all about splitting up, you know, mind and body and spirit and and uh, matter and those kinds of things. But, yeah, thanks, Rene Descartes. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Descartes. You know, <laughs> thank you, Newton. Thank you, uh, uh, all, these, all these guys who were very substance-based, but for at least, what is it, 2020? So for at least about 100 or so years since Einstein and relativity, we've been realizing, I say we, I wasn't there and I still don't get half of it, but as a species, that that's not true you know, the the building, the basic building blocks in life, like even think about a cell, it's not, it's not either the proton, the neutron, the electron, it's actually the relationship between the three. It's so powerful. In fact, we know how powerful it is. If, if we split those three things, we know the kinds of uh, violence that that can cause. So um, relationality is the name of the game. So a lot of people get that, even a lot of Christians who may or may not totally adhere to some of the theology that I'd like them to adhere to, probably get that part. What open and relational does is they take that relationality and they they assign that to the divine as well. So it's not as if I can say, oh, well, everything's relational and then God is separate from all that, but rather that God's in the middle of everything in a really incredibly awesome but strange, weird way as well. So Whitehead's famous phrase is something like, you know, God is not the exception but but the chief exemplification of what is going on so in a really real way what open relational process people think is that you cannot really know god unless you know creation and you cannot really know creation unless you know god and that everything is is wildly connected so that's the relational piece and And if you take that seriously, it bleeds over to the open piece. The open piece, of course, has to do with time. So it's something like, you know, if God is really relational and is really interacting and is not an outside of space and time deity who is reaching in whenever, you know, he or she wants to um, and, you know, pulling levers and pushing buttons and making things happen, you know, a real take control kind of a God, um, but who is someone who is, deeply embedded within the very nucleus of the world and is truly Emmanuel God with us and present. That kind of God in relationship with us could not be a God who controls the future um, because then he wouldn't be really in relationship because if you're in a relationship and you you know how everything's going to turn out and you're controlling things and you're fabricating and manufacturing and coercing we all know that's not a real relationship Um, that's just you going through the motions until you get what you want and so the whole relational piece leads to this openness of time like everything happens within uh, a sequence of time there's the the prayer request there's the response to the prayer request you know or whatever what we might be talking about there's the need and then there's the response and we're it's all happening within time. And so this relationality of God leads to the idea that the future has not yet been settled, that the future is an unknown quantity. It it could never be settled because it's is—it's literally the future. There's a multiplicity of factors that go into every single moment. And so what you get moment by moment is all the past. You know, it's crashing up into this moment. You get options. Now, you might not get a lot of options, Sometimes there may only be a few, but even in the smallest, you know, even in the smallest quantum spaces, there's some, there's, there's something that's happening. There's randomness and there's there's ways to respond to all that. So and then you get agency. So I know Trip Fuller talks about that a lot. Those three things. You get the past, you get um, options, and you get agency. Sometimes I like to say you also get the divine in the midst of all that, but actually I think the divine is so infused that. You can't even really separate that. So that's not as good as Tom's going to do. Your listeners are going to want to go back and listen to him. He's the man. But that's often what I'll talk about when I talk about open and relational.
1: I I love that, man. I, I, I love uh, shifting uh, from the uh, kind of platonic ideal, this this idea of perfection that is beyond us to uh, that in, inherent in creation, in relationship, is reality, um, mm-hmm. and the experience uh, of that connection is, you know, and I and uh, Josh and I talk about this and explore this. I, I would almost say, and again, sorry for the crying dog in the background, just a fourteen-week-old pup. Uh, but I would almost ex- just say that the the spiritual journey is a, a about a growing awakening to our already existing connection uh, to the divine, to one another, to ourselves, to the cosmos. uh, And that the great uh, delusion is separation. um, And that all what we would call biblically sin uh, arises from a delusion of separation. Uh, it's, It's not inherent separation, it's a delusion of separation. And the more we grow in awareness of our already existing connection, the more we experience love, the more we experience meaning uh, and and purpose. Um, and so th- th- for me in my own journey, the, this open and relational theology is absolutely the most congruent, um, not just intellectually, but experientially, uh, in living into that uh, in and experiencing.
2: And biblically. And, and
1: biblically. Why not? Just throw in the Bible. Why not? You know, just throw in the Bible. Go ahead, those, Jonathan. Why not?
2: Right, right. Sorry, for those who care about such <laughs> things, uh, you're right. Experientially, scientifically, it makes the most sense. Uh, Relationally, biblically, for those who care about such things, it makes the most sense too, probably. I hesitate. I say the most sense. I don't want to act like I know all the answers because there are some really smart pe- people who don't always agree with me. Um, but but it, it helps me explain this omnipresence that I think is so, so prevalent and helpful in the Bible. Uh, so yeah, I think that's really good stuff.
0: Yeah. You have to forgive Greg. He's a heathen and just, you know, wants to throw the Bible oh, yes. out the window and I'm an Episcopal you know,
1: priest, just... you know, we have the <laughs> book of common prayer and that's, that's enough. You know, is that that's not right? Fair.
2: Is that not right? No. Is that not right? <laughs> it's all good, man. No. I'm, I'm down with that. Yeah. But
0: no, I, 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 actually deeply appreciate it because I do think there is such a strong case that can be made from a, a biblical you know perspective In regards to open and relational theology, um, I think actually within uh, Tom's latest book, uh, Pluriform Love, Tom does a really nice job interacting with scripture. I mean, I think your book is filled with scripture, (laughs) which is is fantastic um, because people need that, especially my friend Jace, who's like, he's an Old Testament scholar. And this is me imitating Jace, like, oh, but what about the Bible? And be like, dude, like, uh, you know, and uh, but you have. You know, also within I think, um, you know, reading the Old Testament, which uh, my buddy Jace is an o- Old Testament scholar, um, you have people like uh, Terence Fredheim, um, who embraced you know open and relational thinking, and that's not you know, he's no joke, <laughs> he's no pushover. So right. I, I appreciate the the biblical um, support because that is one thing that often. Um, I am guilty of overlooking because I think more theologically, um, not that the two are separate, but, you know, there there's a temptation there. Um, and so I guess one question I wanted to ask you in regards to open and relational theology is when it comes and you, you offer a variety of these in your book, but when it comes to open and relational theology, what do you think, what do you think are some of the most helpful critiques um, that open and relational theology can bring uh, to what is often called like traditional theism or classic theism rather. Um, yeah. What, what are some helpful things that you think open and relational theology allows you to do so to speak?
2: Yeah. There's so many good things. There's so many helpful things for me over the years and ways I've been able to apply it. I mean, some of the first things that come to mind are like with open relational theology, it's kind of the first time I've been able to be a um, whatever I am now. I, I mean, I'm fine with being a Christian, but um, you know, I'm a follower of, of love. It's the first time um, where I, I can kind of embrace science, really, and I don't have to be embarrassed about uh, what the scientists are saying necessarily. So I really like that. I really like its commitment to that. Of course, on the other hand, there's a lot of scientists who are, you know, a more fundamentalist atheists, and so I, it's it's also um, the first time I get to hang out with them and bring theology and not be embarrassed too. So because it's you know open and relational is just really open to, um, gosh, what what's the best way of saying it without sounding arrogant? You know, just really open to intelligence and open to wisdom and and to um, truth, although I know truth can be co-opted, so I've I've loved that whole piece, and it's just helped me to um, to live in the middle of those two worlds that aren't always easy to live in. The, the other thing that comes to mind, and we've already kind of referenced it, but is the the critique of capital, what I call it in the uh, in the dissertation in the book, is capital O omnipotence. Ka- uh, Catherine Keller, who's one of my favorite theologians, she talks about the omni macho God. And I, I love that phrase too. Um, this whole idea of, you know, again, the outside time and space, of course it's masculine because, you know, let's be honest, gender is important here. Uh, this masculine outside time and space, capital O omnipotent, hierarchical top down, you know, do whatever he wants to do. If, if you, if you mess up, it's, you know, you're out of the picture next man up. It's no big deal to him because he's already got it figured out. He's a blueprint God. All of those things. I mean, every just one of those little cliched things I said are just, you know, nauseating. And and in the end, at the end, I think the best you can say about them is that they're. This is me personally. There are, there are people out there. Again, there are smart, good people out there who, who don't necessarily believe this. So I'm not trying to be disrespectful. But for me, at the end, capital O omnipotence um, at best is is misaligned and at worst it's abusive and coercive and manipulative and i just don't think it's done us any good at all and here's the funny thing talking about the bible and by the way i'm not really a bible expert but um, i have spent a lot of my life in it it's not even necessarily biblical i mean omnipotence doesn't appear in the bible Um, and certainly this concept of that we've you know weighed weighted our entire theology down with is, is not necessarily part of the Bible. I mean, there's a way to read the Bible to make you think that. I just don't think it's the healthiest way. So I'm, I'm not down with omnipotence. I'm not really down with omniscience, unless I get to, you know, really define it, but I'm, I'm down with omnipresence. So anyhow, I'm trying to answer the question, what are some, some things that it helps me critique? It, It definitely helps me critique the abuse that capital O omnipotence has as introduced to the world
0: Yeah, that when I think that's so that's one of my favorite uh critiques as well that it offers um and I know our our mutual friend Tom is uh is currently working on uh some more
2: yes. you know writing around of, those topics death yeah. of omnipotence I think is his most dramatic recent title that he's working on what's his yeah. new
1: word um, emin- omnipotence
2: eminu A- what, what yeah. is it ami or ami yeah am yeah. so it's basically love, love, power. love yeah.
1: power love power love potency yeah. right on tom bring it tom we'll give you shit <laughs> earlier but just know we're behind you buddy <laughs> absolutely love power let's do it <laughs>
0: yeah that so that's that's um i don't know that's that's one of my favorite uh critiques as well and i think i agree with you i like the uh I think omnipresence is the best of the omni qualities yes. uh within uh traditional uh air quotes theism. Um so I yep, dig that
2: it. helps, that helps helps keep so the phrase that just came to mind is when we were talking about Tom's book and, and this whole thing is you're you're either a person who is about the love of power or the power of love. Yeah, that's bam. And so <laughs> much of the capital O omnipotent Americanized Christianity is the love of power. It really, really is. When you just flip that, it's like, oh no, it's the power of love. And it it requires you, it invites you to redefine love and to reframe love and to rehabilitate this really, which, you know, it's kind of become this wishy-washy, you know, word that, so yeah, the love of power versus the power of love.
1: Yeah, it changes everything. Yep. it changes everything. It does. And again, this is this is where uh, uh, understanding our, our theological framework impacts our every millisecond of every day, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it impacts is our lens on life uh, and how we experience every moment. Uh, so I again, I, I think because I, many years ago I went to Reformed theological seminary. Uh, originally, I was a PCA pastor. Uh, no wonder you're I, a heathen now. I'm a total heathen. I no, no I, dead serious. Like for me to go from a PCA pastor to a Episcopal priest who sometimes is barely hanging on a Christianity at all.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It
1: is a, um, I am in, and I'm still in the same town, uh, where I planted a PCA church and then moved on. The, so I'm in many times I go into a, uh, a grocery store and I bump into people that thinks I am a heretic or a persona non grata. Right, right. Uh, I've, I've grown accustomed to it. Uh, but it's all worth it in the journey of, uh, leaning into you know what it means to love you know what it means to and it's constant it's 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 uh gritty and raw so with that being said with that uh segue uh we've defined kind of open and relational theology in a nutshell and we could write a dissertation on what was just said because you know here we are all all brilliant i did i wrote it that's the book yeah oh that's right that's right the theology of consent are you an author and so uh yeah, Theology of Consent, brilliant book. But the, um, so now kind of again with your subtitle, love that book, and getting into Rene Gerard. Uh, how would you kind of express the heart of mimetic theology? How would you uh, articulate that to someone you're just having to? bump into at uh starbucks who's saying hey jonathan i'm so curious i've got a grande latte and i just don't want to finish it until you explain to me mimetic theology
2: yeah it's probably going to take a couple grande lattes but um and to be clear it's it's mimetic theory not necessarily mimetic theology sorry sorry thank you yep theory no uh however mimetic theology also works too but um well I can I can kind of give you a bit of um yeah I can try to unpack it I can unpack I can do that I think so I'm a doctor now so this can, You wrote this a book happen. on that you're a doctor I wrote a book So um all right it'll take me a couple minutes but and I'll I'll fast forward but it's such good helpful beautiful stuff um, if your listeners aren't already aware of it. Yeah, gonna, it is well worth the time. Exactly. Drop it like it's hot. <laughs> That's right. It's well worth it. So the way I normally explain it is um, mimetic theory, Rene Girard, first of all, Rene Girard was a French-American intellectual, this brilliant thinker, um, lived his last several years at Stanford and, um, and, and just gave us a lot of really, really important material. And he discovers what he winds up calling mimetic theory He discovers or uncovers it, and I'm not sure the best way to say it, first by reading through classic literature, people like Camus and Proust, especially Shakespeare, um, Dostoevsky for sure. He's noticing that these novelists have some really prescient, interesting, intelligent insight into how humans interact with each other. And uh, it's around desire and modeling and imitation and and then and eventually we talk about scapegoating then a little bit later in his life he he gets into kind of anthropology and and Mm. discovers some of the same stuff and then later in his life he realizes this this thing he's been um lining out is really really similar to his catholic upbringing so like any good french intellectual he wasn't a believer i mean you can't be But later in his life, he starts to um, reconvert. And it cost him a lot, actually. I mean, in the intellectual world, a lot of people dismissed him because of it. Um, But he becomes a devout Catholic until the end of his life because he sees um, the way this all plays out through the Hebrew narrative and then especially culminating in the life of Jesus. Okay, so that's René Girard. And he doesn't normally start this way. But um, I usually start by saying, memetic theory is built on two things. The first we've already discussed, and that is that we live in a relational cosmos. Um, Girard doesn't use that word. Girardians will use the word interdividuality. So we're talking about we're talking about psychological things. This is primarily what we'll talk about here in desire. And so th- the idea is that we're really not individuals. I mean, you know, where I begin and you end, and vice versa. We're we're not even really sure. Um, So the goal is to consider that we're inner individuals, still have an essence of being an individual, but we're interconnected. So the first thing is it's built on this relationality piece. And the second thing is, and most Girardians don't talk about this, and I'm pretty surprised that they don't. But this is super important, at least as I interpret Girard, and that is that what seems to be true about all of us humans is um, that we have a really strong awareness of our own, what the philosophers call lack, our own shortcoming. Um, it seems to be a common denominator with all of us that we're intensely aware, whether we admit it or not, which is for a whole nother, um, you know, probably episode, we talk about suppression and repression and the things that we don't admit. But um, whether we admit it or not, we're really aware of our own um. Shortcomings. So into this world of relationality and aware of my own problems, Girard begins to outline the mimesis, which is uh, first of all, I usually say it has to do with desire, imitation, scapegoating, excuse me, desire, imitation, conflict, scapegoating ritualization. The desire piece is I don't know what I desire. I only know what other people desire. You know, I I didn't know that I liked that. I needed a painting or wanted a painting like that until I saw Greg's cool, you know, painting behind him on the wall. And it begins to make me think, gosh, you know, I need I need something on my wall. But part of the insight there with Gerard is the reason I think that is because I'm aware of my own lack. And I feel like, you know, you kind of present yourself like you're non lacking. And so I want to imitate you. Um, Our entire marketing industry is built upon this idea of showing other people your desires. They don't show you you know, the kind of soda that you want to drink. They show you the kind of soda that your model wants to drink. And so you begin to imitate the model. I mean everything in our marketing consumeristic society is is about imitation just desire and imitation. So let's see, I gotta fast forward. Um, so desire, yeah leads to this imitation piece. I want the soda and you want the soda. It drives the value of the soda up. Meanwhile, the soda doesn't, doesn't fill this lack inside of me. You know, I tend to think that it might. I mean, of course, I don't ever drink a soda thinking, oh, I want to fill this lack. But And so it could be a, a soda, it could be a car, it could be the painting, it could be something you're wearing, it could be the guy or the girl or the degree. It could be the book that you just wrote. That you know, really down deep, the reason you did this dissertation in this book is so that you could fill your own lack, you know, because you're imitating someone like oh Tom Ord, who looks like he's got it all together, you know. So you want to be cool like that. I mean, it it plays out in a million different ways. Uh, So what Gerard says is eventually, I'm imitating someone else; they're imitating me because it's always reciprocated, and we can get into that if we want. But where this goes for Girard is it leads to conflict. And so as we're interacting, the antagonism of my own lack gets activated, exacerbated. And that's true of my model as well. And it's never just one-on-one because we live in a relational cosmos. We're always bringing the entire community with us, i.e. our family, the church, our political party, our nation, you know, our community, whatever the case might be. And so desire leads to imitation, which leads to rising conflict. There are probably other reasons for that we could get into. But then uh, the fourth piece is the part that's, you know, that Sherrard is most well known for. And that's the idea that at the edge of chaos, when everything is, um, you know, when everyone's pointing their finger, the whole world, as G.K. Chesterton says, is like one wild divorce court, and everyone's mad at everyone else. And um, right at the moment before we go to blows, we we agree, like me and my adversary, my group and the other group, somehow through like an invisible, strange, psycho-spiritual kind of a move, we agree to turn and point our fingers At someone else, and we say, you know what, it's actually not your fault or my fault, it's that person's fault. And so, my favorite word to use here is probably offload. We offload all of our psychospiritual crap onto the back of someone else, which then allows us to um, gain unity with our adversary, which is super, super powerful. And then it also allows us to punish the thing that we don't like because. When I'm offloading my psychospiritual stuff, uh, it's what seems to be true, and we we have to kind of get into philosophical psychodynamics to kind of unpack this more. So just kind of take it at face value right now. But what seems to be true is like we're we're really we're really seeing in that person what we don't like about ourselves. And so it justifies as we project our stuff onto them, it really kind of justifies our punishing them and rejecting them and so me and my former opponent agree in unanimity to scapegoat that person and so then we you know we kill them we lynch them on a tree we push them in a volcano we shove them in the gas oven we write a bad social media post we don't sit with them at the lunchroom table our scapegoating tactics are endless they never stop but it's always built on at least two lies the first lie is that me and my opponent are innocent. And the second lie is that that scapegoating victim is is really guilty. There's so many things to say here, um, but desire, imitation, conflict, scapegoating. The last piece is the repeating and the ritualization of all that. For Gerard, that's what religion comes out of. Sorry, that was a lot of words, but there you have it in a short amount of time.
0: No, it's good. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Not, I like in the um, I know you had uh mentioned uh Peter Rollins earlier, and I think that's probably where I first also came across. Well, I don't know if that's where you first came across this kind of thinking, but that's where I came across um some of these kind of ideas. He didn't necessarily uh you know reference Gerard, but he would talk about like this the myth of the sacred object, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is so interesting, um, because in a strange way i not all uh christian traditions but there are some christian traditions that actually play into that myth of the sacred object and set god up as that sacred object and then put people into this uh perpetual cycle that's just really unhealthy and not great um and so i i always have lo- like th- found that critique so very helpful um Sure? So uh, yeah, that's that's just uh, one thing that that came to mind. Um...
2: Yeah, so I got into. Um, I know you didn't ask, or maybe you did earlier. That's again, all good. But the, I know I I can't remember if it was Peter Rollins or not that I first learned about Gerard, But the but the basic concept, the basic reason I got there was because um, immediately following the death of our child, I was like, well, my I mean, my first thought was you know, what the hell just happened. That was, I'm still basically thinking that almost eight years later. But, um, my next thought was like, why did this have to happen? And not so much again, that I was necessarily mad at God, which would have been fine if I was some, but it was more like, what does this mean? Like, what does this mean? I still wrestle with that pretty much every day. Like, you know, and I know I can't ever really figure it out, but, um, it is just the way my brain is. And well, that question for me, and I think for a lot of people who are interested in Jesus, is connected probably at some level with, well, what did it mean that Jesus had to die? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, somewhere in there, i that's where I landed on Gerard, and Gerard gave me a way to see why Jesus had to die. Oh, now I know why Jesus had to die, because we killed him. That's it. End of the story. Well, why did we kill him? Oh, we we killed him. The reason we killed him was because of all those things we just worked through in a really, you know, condensed way, like because we're all so worked up about our own anxiety and we can't figure out how to deal with it. And it's also connected to what we were talking about earlier about this myth of separation. You know, we feel like we're separated. And so then we project all of our stuff on other people and we create all this violence and then we scapegoat and and Jesus becomes a scapegoat. So that was so incredibly helpful for me to have an intelligent. Way to work through why this incredibly absurd thing happened to this, you know, obviously really compelling person. And it has all these ramifications and implications with a bunch of other stuff.
1: So, whew, okay. Uh, so, I think we can, you know, when I was in the PCA and I was going through my ordination process way back in. 2001, you know, I had to break down, I had to write papers and break down my theology of penal substitutionary atonement. And it was all so academic. Uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, Jesus, anyway, the the whole idea of the cross uh, was uh, all in Greek and Hebrew. Um, When you just share Jonathan about the death of your child Mm -hmm. and um, you're I think I there there there's such an intimate connection of the meaning of death, uh, and or the lack of meaning, or the chaos, or the suffering of that. And I hesitate to ask this question just because it's so raw and so human. Sure. But uh, I I just want to, to me, the, the most the reason we're here, the reason that we give any time on rethinking faith or that I in our own journeys are exploring. This is because we're just trying to fucking get through life in a meaningful way. And what's the purpose and is there love and how do we right. live this in a meaningful way? Right. What has been, you know, as we talk about Rene Girard and mimetic theory, we talk about uh, open and relational theology, like on a, on a daily basis, as you process your grief, even these eight years later, uh, the, the, your your theology the theology has grown out of such gritty, raw suffering in life to search for maybe, and and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but uh, meaning or for hope or for how you move forward in love. But Jonathan, how would you articulate? The 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 meaning the reason you wrote this book in terms of your gritty ass waking up in the middle of the night with your night thoughts and what the fuckness and how does this and and struggling with hope and meaning on, on the rawest level of getting through a day why did you write this book and how does the the beauty of all you just articulated and it was so gorgeous and so expansive from open and relational connection to um, mimetic theory and René Girard but how does this get you through a day and not only get you through, but actually move you through?
2: Yeah, I appreciate that question because um, it is true. It's um, it, it has been eight years of excavating the depth of beauty that I experienced, the depth of pain and beauty I experienced the day she died. And then trying to explicate that excavation, <laughs> it's been trying to figure out what all of that means. And so, a part of the way to answer your question, the the the, the way I've gotten through the last uh, seven years and twelve months and five days is—excuse me, eleven months and five days—is by doing this stuff. You know, I've written five or six books. We started a uh, nonprofit down in Haiti. She was planning to be a. Uh, a medical missionary to Haiti, and so we started that. My son, my oldest son, runs that now. And and writing all of this has been a way for me to get through. So it's been super helpful. So it's not like, let's see, what's the best way of saying this? It's not like, oh, I discovered mimetic theory and open relational theology. That necessarily then. Okay, it did give me hope, but I wasn't what I just what I felt first was a sense, a depth of hope and a depth of beauty is the best way of saying it for me. Beauty for me, I um, began to try to explain in a whitehead kind of a way, Alfred North Whitehead talked about beauty being the diversification of things, um, uh, of, of harmonization of diversity, sorry, of harmonization of diversity you take these things that normally don't go together and somehow you figure out how they can kind of make this, this beautiful music, which by the way is what I did with what I tried to do with open relational theology and the Mises, you know, they're, they're things, they're disparate things that don't normally go together. So um, what I, what I experienced at the very beginning on the day she, on the day she died was um, like a, a presence and a depth and and a, some thinking that I've, bas- I've basically just been trying to figure out how to how to explicate that, and so mimetic theory and open relational. Then on the backside has given me the best way to get there. I keep I keep kind of living there. um I mean, I could sh- I don't want to share the whole. It's a it's a kind of a long attempt story, even though the day she died. But I really appreciate you asking the question. It has been what I've been doing. It's the reason. I don't always say it, but every sermon I've preached, every small group I've led, every book I've read, every word of this dissertation, either directly or indirectly, is is trying to make sense of that and also honor my daughter in grief and also capture and recapture the love and the beauty that, along with the pain, because beauty is both love and pain. They're not mutually exclusive. I don't know if i just answered your question it's a it's a thank jumbled you. mess of uh
1: of course of and that's stuff. utterly congruent thank you for that yeah. uh who i just feel it <clears throat> yeah. i
2: feel i feel your answer and uh and and it, and, and i'll say when i get to the I, what i've experienced so far i've experienced a lot of people responding really well to it um But I can tell a lot of people start to get bogged down when they get to the open and relational part, um, which could be for a number of different reasons. Hopefully people will press through to the end because uh, when I start talking about an evolution of love, um, when I get, you know, that love piece and that beauty piece is so important to me. And I think so important to the hope of the world. You know, we've had basically 400 years of. Of like this legal, like you talked about substitutionary atonement. We've had 400 years of explaining it legalistically, of explaining it economically. There are very, very thin ways to uh, talk about love. We need, you know, we need something else, and I think beauty is that way forward. You know, Dostoevsky has one of his characters say, "With beauty like this, you could change the whole world." And I really do think that that's that's the hope. So, um, I love talking about it. I could talk about love and beauty, even though I'm probably not making any sense all night. So we don't need dude, to wrap up. Dude,
1: dude, you, dude, you're okay. First of all, let me just say a, <laughs> we, we've got a lot of guests on the show and, uh, but, uh, I'm Josh probably thinks I'm woo woo, but I'm definitely an energy dude. Like But I definitely like, uh, I've been in ministry a long time and I've been just you know but but I would just say Jonathan you're um your pres- what what I found is in my journey that people that have gone through profound suffering mm-hmm. uh that it either makes them incredibly brittle uh and sardonic uh, and and harsh or it makes them incredibly tender and vulnerable and compassionate and people that have gone through great suffering there's very little gray uh they're they're often either one or the other Mm -hmm. and uh your your presence your energy uh like i would just say dude like i i just like you're the kind of dude i just want to hang out with like let's go get a beer let's be friends like let's just we could sit together and watch we can watch breaking bad you know we could just you know we'll just hang out together but (laughs) but like i would just say that that's the quality of energy that you exude uh jonathan and i think it's born of your that in your suffering that somehow whatever for your journey whatever your makeup is that instead of going sardonic bitter and jaded that you went tender and compassionate and that is evident uh in your presence and i just want to name that man so thank you thank you um yeah dude uh well i'm just naming naming what i'm seeing uh but i know josh has got a question lined up because i've been blathering on but uh, i just i do want to name that man and thank you my heart feels very uh Full and tender after the answer you just gave. So thanks, brother.
0: Thank you. Yeah. And I, <clears throat> I second everything. Um, I don't know that Greg said, um, especially too, because even just, you know, from that perspective, when you like, you, you know, when you can like read someone's book or like their writing or something and you can just, you can kind of tell kind of where they're coming from like this person's just really pissed this person has dad issues this you know what i mean um like i the i don't know the place you're writing comes from um i appreciate um and just i don't know resonate with so i second um what what greg is offering um, well
2: i appreciate that i think some of that too i'm really thankful tom allowed me to like it's not written in a normal dissertation kind of way uh, you know, most yeah. of these are, and I'm not even saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying most of them are a little bit more analytical, maybe a little more research oriented. But uh, especially at the beginning of this year, because we're here at the end of 2022. So, really around January, which is um, not coincidentally about the time I uh, gave our most recent church plan a big hug and we decided to all go move on and try different things. So, I really had a ton of time. I just started writing from my heart and hour upon hour and I was really I thought what Tom would say was this is good but what we need to do for the dissertation you know needs to go this direction and maybe you can retool it for the book but thankfully he was like no I think I think you know there's something there's something happening here and uh so I'm really I'm really grateful for that um because that made it a lot more meaningful for me and I was talking about beauty I was um this is probably too much hubris I I was hopefully writing in a somewhat beautiful way as I was talking about beauty otherwise it it made no sense to talk about beauty in an analytical way you can't it's not like you can put underneath a microscope so anyhow it was a really I I appreciate all that and we haven't even mentioned the cartoon sketches yet yeah no the
0: cartoons are are yes
2: they're great did you are those your sketches they are, they are. Nice. I was, I was aided by some stock, you know, stuff and some computer stuff, but no, they're, they're mine. Well done. Right, thank you. Thank <laughs> I, you. I appreciated
0: the, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, sketches, which add to the, uh, the layers of beauty. Um, right. And yeah, but I, I mean, I really do think too. I think the book is beautifully written, and I think you managed to. I know in the, the book you also. I, I don't mean this negatively, but you have like sometimes like a self-deprecating kind of tone where it's like I'm trying to do this thing. Hopefully, this is how it's coming across. I'm like, dude, it's fucking awesome. Keep going. You're <laughs> nailing it. So um, I really yeah, I enjoyed it. Uh um, you sound
2: just like my wife, except not with the F word. Other oh, than sorry, that, I like- uh, Yeah,
1: yeah, faith. Have- That's on brand. This is rethinking
2: faith. No, I'm brand. not saying this wrong. I'm just saying <laughs> I just want you to know you're in alignment with with uh my best people.
0: Yeah, I I appreciate it, but we most definitely have uh potty mounts and i'm just going to chalk it up to uh i don't know i'll just say religious trauma cuz that gets me off the hook <laughs> yeah, but I, it uh... does <laughs> you're, you're fine with me cool um but i do think too on the, the the topic of uh beauty which actually interesting enough i'm i'm glad you keep bringing that up has been something that i've really been focusing on a lot uh more recently in my own um a theological journey and stuff, especially as I continue reading uh more like open relational process thinkers, Whitehead, you know, Andrew Davis, his book Mind Value Cosmos, it got me thinking this way. Um, but beauty is just so important. And then once you see something that is just so beautiful, you're almost like, this is so beautiful that this has to be true. <laughs> yeah. Well. Or at
2: least I really hope it is. And so beauty I think, is I, I think I don't know if I say it in the book or somewhere else. Yeah, for me, beauty is truth more than truth is truth.
0: Yes. Boom, mic drop. <laughs>
2: well done. Yes.
0: Yes. Oh, uh, so good. Um, and I think that's something too. You mentioned him earlier. Uh, but Trip Fuller, who is a person I am very much indebted to, uh, has slowly been trying to get me to see as well. He's been very patient with uh my nonsense, but slipping in uh these ideas of beauty is is something he's been trying to
2: sneak in. Um yeah, well, um, of course, Tripp is a big Alfred North Whitehead guy, and and Whitehead is. is the one that says that the. Um, I'm slightly paraphrasing. If you want perfect Whitehead quotes, you got to go back to Andrew Davis. You already mentioned Andrew. That dude can spout him right and left. But but Whitehead basically says that the fundamental aim of the universe is not moral; it's it's beauty. Beauty is the fundamental aim. That's the trajectory, and I think if the if a church could capture that, if a people group could capture that, if crap, if I could capture it for my marriage or, you know, for, for what I bring to the marriage and or, you know, for life in general, the fundamental aim being beauty. And then it gets us away from having to line out all these stupid rules and right live under the weight of all these ordinances and statements. And um, it makes it, And creeds, right. It makes it harder. It's messier for sure. It's a little bit scarier, a little bit more vulnerable and risky, but I mean, what else is there? You, we can't control anything anyhow. So I'm totally down with that. Yeah. So much more compelling.
1: Yeah. It's so much more compelling. And what you just said, it sounds kind of uh, like an oxymoron, but it's just not, it's not at all. But like that, that, that beauty is truth more than truth is truth. That, that the, the, what we're saying with that, Again, maybe unpacking that a whisper that uh, we in the West are so head centric, uh, and that we approach things in such a uh, intellectual uh, way. Like the I was just at a conference the other day where Brian McLaren was talking about the Enlightenment was the belief that the neocortex was going to bring all of life. You know that. You know, we have the mammalian brain, the reptilian brain, the neocortex, which, of course, neo uh, means new in in the evolutionary spectrum. It's the new kid on the block. But we just thought that reason would bring uh, complete healing and just acknowledging that I love reason. I love the brain, uh, but it but but it in and of itself in disconnection with the heart or body is so limited in its in its uh, potency. And understanding beauty, uh, beauty is an intrinsic melody between heart, body, and mind. It's all three, uh, you know, all the melodies flowing together. Mm -hmm. And uh, it takes us out of the realm of uh, uh, a disconnected, uh, head-centric, creedal-based philosophy, theology, uh, perspective, and brings us back into humanness uh, into the whole experience because beauty, uh, can not just be described, uh, rationally, it has to be felt, you know, there's, and and what words can you give to a, a sunset with such colors that if anyone utters a word, it's, it's blasphemy because it's interrupting the gorgeousness of the shared experience, right? It's, it's, or sometimes when you're driving a car and all of a sudden that one song comes on and if anyone speaks you yell at them to shut up because they they, they don't interrupt the beauty or or that moment where you're sharing a meal with friends and you're drinking wine and it's good food and laughter rolls down the table and you don't even hear the joke but it washes over you like a warm blanket and you just experience the reality that you're not alone that you're connected and there's a beauty like like in a The this is in Lord of the Rings, of course, Josh, shut up. Don't mock me for quoting Tolkien here again. But in Lord of the Rings, when uh, Samwise is in Mordor and all it looks like all hope is lost. And there's this one moment where there's such darkness and Samwise looks up and there's a break in the clouds in Mordor and he sees stars sparkling. And he realizes at that moment that there is a beauty out there that, that the darkness cannot touch. Mm -hmm. Uh, that no matter how much pain and darkness there is there's a beauty that exists that darkness cannot touch that existential experience of beauty is the essence to me of meaning in life and 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 that's what you're describing Jonathan I feel like that's what you're inviting us into an experience of beauty that 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 beauty as truth is greater than truth is truth and I think that is worth like like i said earlier i told you we're going to dance around in this like kids in a kiddie pool splashing around and that to me is like we are to splash around in that beauty with that uh freedom that joy uh and that expression is is the invitation of what your book is and and uh what open relational theology is uh and what it means to uh explore humanness and that that in splashing around in this like kids with joy is in no way in denial of the suffering and pain of life in fact as you described uh immediately as you're talking about your the the utter uh I even the the utter loss and pain of your daughter you described both the beauty and pain mm-hmm. as a wed mm-hmm. um and so that to me uh i'm sorry for waxing Maybe too too poetic here, but that to me, that articulation of beauty, that's the meaning of why we're here. That's the beauty of theology. That's the beauty of philosophy, uh, and and why we're we're engaging this. So, um, uh, maybe I'm I'm not like Sully Sullenberger landing the plane well, but uh, in the Hudson with with all survivors. But I'm just going to say, the invitation to experience and uh, experience beauty as truth uh, resonates with me so deeply as uh, why we're walking this journey and what uh, this, this work is of inviting other people into it. And I just want to say, thank you, man, for your, your book is a a gorgeous invitation
2: to that experience. That's pretty cool. Thank you. I I love it.
0: Yeah. I, uh, again, second uh, Greg's beautiful uh, poetic. I just need about, Ten thousand more people
2: like you guys and then Yeah.
1: <laughs> dude, we're about to, you know, we've we're got working. we've got we've got one billion uh subscribers. So oh, yeah you are you're you're, you're it's your about to go off the charts. Viral. New York you Times did. bestseller.
2: I thought you did. Viral. Yeah. <laughs> well I uh
0: I, I know Greg uh was trying to to start to bring the plane in for landing. Um I'll try to do it this way. Can you um and it's Sorry, I'd like to give people like you know somewhat softball questions. Um I think you're going to nail this one. But <laughs> if you if you had to attempt to land the plane so to speak uh on this conversation of, of beauty, open relational theology, uh mimetic theory, um by merging the two together. Uh the open and relational and the mimetic theory. Um maybe you could think about writing a book about it, but if you had to do that uh, for us, how would you uh, kind of bring the two together in a way that, that you find beautiful?
2: Yeah. Well, they, like we've already kind of alluded to, they're, they're completely different paradigms. They they're trying to answer different things. You know, Girardi and stuff is anthropological open and relational is just much bigger and expansive and, you know, incorporates everything. Girard is just like constantly laser focused. It's anthropology. Um, so so it was really hard to bring them together. And at times I felt somewhat foolish. Um, and as far as Tom and I knew, no one else had done this. Since then, um, my friend Andre Rabe from South Africa, who's a Girardian, he's doing some work with Tom too and is writing about a very similar thing but it's hilarious because his stuff is completely different, which I think just speaks to the expansiveness of all this. So um, but what I started to say was with reference to beauty, because there's a hundred different things to say here, is that I felt like I was trying to bring two completely different genres of music together. And I even mentioned that in the writing. It's like sitting down with Chopin and Thelonious Monk, who's a, who's a jazz pianist. Um, and I actually made a playlist of Monk and Chopin and few a th- threw a few others in as well, too. And, um, you know, at first, there's no connection. They play in Girard and Whitehead or Girard and Whiteheady, and influenced open relational theology play in different keys. They're playing in different scales. But I love the idea of in harmonic overtones. I don't know if you or your listeners are musicians, but. You know, if you strike a note, let's say on a guitar, if you have an acoustic guitar and you pluck a note on that, pluck a string, and then you hold the whole of the guitar up to your ear, you can hear the, the fundamental note that you've plucked. It's vibrating, but also also these things called um, inharmonic overtones. And so it's the thirds and the fifths and the sevenths and the ninths and the elevenths and on and on and on um, into the inaudible portions of it. And so you know the fundamental note might not be the same that Gerard or Tom Ord or Catherine Keller are, are playing, but the inharmonic overtones they start to blend together the more you listen to them in very eerily in the same way that I found Chopin and Monk kind of do too. Like you could extract a believe it or not, you can extract a phrase from Chopin and you can put it into jazz music, uh, and vice versa. It's 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 really quite crazy. Um, so these inharmonic overtones, so there's all this beauty that vibrates and that oscillates and that's going back and forth in this relational cosmos between people and between concepts, between God and us and between us and creation. Um, it's happening all over the place. And there, it's not always like it's not always super obvious. You kind of have to pause and and listen for the vibrations and and hear the inharmonics of the whole thing. Um, and in certain parts in times in life, you know, the inharmonics grow stronger in certain areas, and other times they grow deeper. And sometimes it's so freaking painful and hurtful. You feel like the minor chords, the openness is just going to suck you in, you know. But then if you just, if, if you can just hang in there and sit with it for a while, all of a sudden you hear a, a deeper vibration or a higher vibration, as it were, just kind of depends Um, because beauty and love is always infused in the middle of all of that. If God is love, then love is patient. That's also a very biblical thing too. Love is enduring and endearing and it's irrepressible. It's indefatigable. Um, You know, it, it can't be stopped. It doesn't control everything. It doesn't force or manipulate. But neither can it be controlled. There's something so paradoxically weird about all of that. Uh, it's the only thing that kind of keeps me going. It's just that vibration of energy and love that I keep tapping into. And yeah, mimetic theory and open and relational somehow begin to explain all of that in in ways that uh, um, I've found to be really, really meaningful. And I used a whole bunch of words and that's why I that's why I wrote the book, I guess.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for (laughs) writing the book. Uh, Yeah. As I said, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, A lot. It's definitely a a resource that I'll find myself uh, returning to Um, especially as I can. Yeah. continue to go on in my own journey of
2: trying to figure out whatever the hell it is. I think about (laughs) things. Well, Uh, me too. You know, what's funny is literally even like last night I was being reminded of, I was reading something about some physics or quantum something. And and I was like, oh, I think I quoted that dude. And so I actually pulled up my book and searched for his name. I was like, I forgot about this footnote that I put in there. So when you say it's a resource for you, it's a re- that's probably why I wrote it too. It's like a resource for me. It's like, I, here's here's all the stuff that I think, like, this is my theology. I don't even understand it yet, but I've smashed it all into this book and it'll help me for the next few years. isn't that (laughs) isn't that such a crazy experience i'm not (laughs) i haven't written a book but i've
0: written like chapters for books or like i i just actually finished an essay today that i did on like life in the apothecine and the hope of ecological civilization um and then you like i i look at it and read it when i'm done i'm like what the
2: that's pretty all cool. right cool yeah, yeah. You're like, nice good, good job I'm like whatever i don't know that's right. awesome though <laughs> you even write it after you after it's done that's stupid no well, that's, that's fantastic
1: well jonathan man thank you so much for being with us i will Thanks, just say guys. um you know you're uh you're obviously brilliant in your approach uh the book is uh not only academically and theologically rich but again, I said it earlier, but I think your, your energy, your presence, in your heart born of your story, uh, kind of bleeds off the pages, uh, both in your vulnerability and your humor. In addition, uh, uh, you bringing theological engagement. So, man, I tell you, it's been a joy, man. It, like you're, you're, you're a, like, you're a dude I'd like to hang out with. Uh, and so, uh, and, and I'm a bit of a, uh, the older i get i'm 50 years old and sometimes i you know my 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 friend list gets kind of small of who i actually want to go out for a beer with and that. uh and so like you're a dude i actually like yeah yeah I mean, let's go hang and and i mean that just uh not because uh we live in the same town and we're gonna get a beer right now but just to affirm the quality of your energy that you bring uh as authentic vulnerable real uh, and that you're blending your intellect with your heart. And so, uh, thanks, man. Thanks for being here. And thanks for sharing your heart. Thanks for sharing your st- story, uh, authentically, vulnerably, uh, and, uh, brilliantly, man. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you guys. means a lot. Let's do it again sometime. Right
1: yeah. On. So Bless listeners back
0: and be a blast.
1: The books, theology of consent, uh, by uh Jonathan Looks like Foster. this for Patreons who Patreon. have video access. Whoa. It, it's kind of like the uh, classic infinity symbol, but one side's a heart. Uh, cool. s- sick metaphor. Well done, you. <laughs> uh, uh, artistic expression. But check it out. Buy it. It's, it's definitely worth reading. So thanks, thanks for a uh, listener for checking that out.
0: Yeah, most definitely. And as always, guys, uh, go in peace.